Hello, and welcome to the 11th episode of Catch Up on Kids Mental Health. I'm Janet Morrison. In this episode, I'm going to talk about racism and mental health with Professor Charmaine Williams from the Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto. Charmaine's research is about issues of inequality and how inequality affects mental health. So she's a wonderful resource for this topic, which is very much in the news and in our consciousness right now. Welcome, Charmaine. It's great to be here, Janet. Thanks for having me. When we first spoke about this, you said it was very important to talk about racism and mental health rather than race and mental health. And I wonder if we could start by having you explain that a little bit. Yeah, I think that often people will talk about race and health, race and mental health, because they may be aware that there are there's research that shows that people who are identified as racialized may have particular experiences with mental illness, may be at higher risks or higher incidence of certain types of mental illness, and may face higher risks. And I always think it's important to clarify whether we are talking about race and health or racism and health, because race and health sort of implies that that the issue is that people who are of particular races have specific health issues. And that may be true with other types of health, but when it comes to mental health, the the much clearer links have been made between people who are affected by racism and the mental health consequences of those effects. So uh, when we look at statistics or research that talks about higher incidences of things like depression or anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, even psychotic disorders, when we talk about that kind of research that might show that there are higher levels of prevalence amongst uh, groups that are racial minorities, then we have to think about what is the pathway there? What is the actual link? And what the research is beginning to be able to show to us is that often the links are experiences like discrimination and racism, traumatic incidents that are associated with being racialized, and then also all of the things, all of the social determinants of health that racialized communities have disadvantages in, for example, income, education, safe living conditions, all those things, that those are the connections that actually make the connection between somebody who's in a body that is a racial minority and the possible experience of of, um, poor mental health. So the stresses that come with being affected by racism, being a victim of racism, in addition to lacking the resources that might lead to resilience, are a pretty bad combination in terms of affecting people and and their mental health. Yes, I think that you've put it very well there, right? So we have particular bodies of work that talk about minority stress, for example. And certainly you can think of that stress in terms of the accumulated stress that somebody experiences with repeated and recurrent exposures to racism. But you can also think of that as just sort of the underlying stressors of living in conditions that are unsafe, that put people at risk, where people are exposed to harmful circumstances, negative situations, that these are also a type of stress that has consequences for health. And we're seeing that that kind of stress is not only being associated with ill mental health. We're also seeing links to heart disease and other kinds of illnesses as well. 
So the, the, the kinds of ongoing stresses that you've been mentioning, would those be as a result of kind of individual incidences that are ongoing? Or are you talking about a larger picture of institutionalized racism as well? It's actually both, Janet, because there is the kind of things that happen interpersonally, uh, negative encounters with other people, things that we might call microaggressions, if you're familiar with that language. So like these are the sort of small things. I mean, this is before we even get to the, the point of, of thinking about assault and violence that many people experience. And, and so there's this sort of category of the microaggressions, which is just the mundane, everyday exposures to being treated um, less well, to being pushed aside, to being insulted, you know, these sort of things that we call microaggressions. And in some ways, I I think the distinction between a microaggression and I guess what we think of as a major aggression, which might be an actual physical assault or um, verbal violence, you know, these kinds of things. I think that distinction is useful because sometimes people don't recognize racism as something that happens in forms that are not always physical violence, cruel and discriminatory language. It's that sometimes it's more subtle, but these are the kinds of things we get in an interpersonal level, these kinds of microaggressions and sometimes uh, violence. But then systemically, the way that racism can operate to shape the kind of opportunities that people have, the kind of resources that are available to them, the safety which that they're able to move through the world with, the ability, the opportunities that that uh, they have to sort of live their best life. These these kinds of systemic issues also take a toll. So if we if we take something specific like what happened with George Floyd last year. So we have this man who is arrested and in the course of that arrest is killed by the police officer. So there's sort of, it, it, it kind of starts with, you know, the sort of micro piece of him being viewed as a suspicious person when he entered that store. Um, and then there's the actual interpersonal thing that blossomed into to actual violence when he was arrested. But more systemically, the conditions that allow a police officer to believe that he can treat a person, treat this Black man in such a manner, reflect systemic problems with the way that police services operate, police officers are trained, and just, you know, attitudes amongst law enforcement that make such a thing possible. So, in the aftermath of that, on the news, we saw so much footage of people being abused and assaulted by police officers. In Canada, it was um, we saw a lot of Black people and Indigenous people in those situations. And because of the moment we're in, they're videotaped because people have phones and they have cameras in different places. So we saw this on the news over and over again. So that sort of pointed to a systemic problem in law enforcement. It po also points to how this manifests in actual person-to-person -person violence, right? And then there's yes. another way in which that also creates fear and apprehension for people who see themselves represented in those experiences. So when we talked earlier, I, I spoke to you about how difficult it was for me with my son when this was all happening, because as a young Black man, he was grappling with what this meant about his, his ability to be safe, about what could happen if he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, about how the world saw him, how police specifically saw him. And part of what was difficult for me in dealing with that was that it also activated all the same fears for me, things that I carry all sure. the time 
and in some ways had tried to protect him from. So as he as he as he's gotten older and has become more independent, he was enjoying his independence, and I was fearful of what would happen when he was away from me. So all of that, you know, that's a that that becomes a stress a stress that we carry all the time, uh, that, that people who are in racialized bodies carry all the time for themselves, for the people that they care about. I, I think even, you know, the, the George Floyd was so powerful because, well, for a bunch of different reasons, but as a white person mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, talking to other white people who, you know, knew intellectually and understood that uh, black men are targeted by, by police officers, but the power of seeing a police mm-hmm. officer continue to kneel on a man's neck, knowing that he was being photographed, I mean, knowing Yes. That this was happening and feeling so, I, I don't know what the word is, so entitled, so uh, used to behaving in this way that he continued to do it. I think that was the thing that really was riveting for, that got the attention of people who didn't get it before at all, just really didn't get it. I think quite shocking to even those of us who knew such a thing was possible. If, just such an explicit demonstration of that man's confidence that yes. there would be no consequences for yes. this behavior. Quite shocking. So what I also wanted to ask you about a little bit, what about the vicarious trauma for everyone watching that, contemplating that, the, as you were talking about earlier, the issues of safety, how, how do you address that? How, as a mother of a Black son, how do you address that? And, you know, it, it is... It is a tough one because on the one hand, it's so explicit what's possible, right? Right. Um, and, and I think, too, you, you have to bear in mind that people who are trying to deal with this, even trying to manage this for their children, are dealing with their own traumas. Sure. So it's when something like this happens, and I know that I felt this happening for myself, it, re, it just really activates maybe something, I think, something that is always there. We're always carrying this apprehension. And this worry, but then it just activates it, uh, and, and in a way that can be very hard to pro- process. And I think inevitably uh, throws you back into all of the incidents that may have happened to you, or to people you care about, or people that are close to you. So, I mean, the the vicarious traumatization. I think it's historical and it's immediate because historically you're thinking about all of these things that you have known and seen, even multi-generationally, what you have known and that others have seen um, that tells you that you are not safe in this world because of the color of your skin mm-hmm. and that you are treated differently because of the color of your skin. And then immediate moment, just the fear that you feel because this one happened to be caught on camera. We know there are lots of others that weren't caught on camera. And I mean, take for example, right now in Canada, all of these graves that are being found at the residential schools. Right. There was nobody to record that. And I think those families, those communities knew something had happened to their children, but but this was denied. It wasn't looked at. It was covered up. Of course, this is this is just tearing through those communities now. The reawakening of these traumas, the reactivating of these immediate and intergenerational traumas, and just the fresh trauma of, of being reminded that something like this can happen to me, something like this can happen to my children. I, I understand that there's, they're really struggling in those communities right now. And I think even those of us that aren't Indigenous are struggling. Uh, sure. We don't want to believe this is the country that we live in and that such a thing can happen. 
but it is, and it has. Do you think that our mental health community and our mental health institutions get that? Do you think that they understand what is happening at a psychological level for our racialized uh, members of society, for our Indigenous people, and, and that they have ways to address it adequately? Uh, I think it's a work in progress. I mean, what I see because of the work I do, I see um, agencies and, and spaces where people are quite deliberately working in this issue. They've identified themselves as anti-racist or uh, LGBTQ inclusive spaces or things like that. And they have they have done the work internally and they have brought in the people that they believe will be able to provide services that are appropriate, but also I guess affirmative in the sense that clients do not have to go into that space thinking that that they have to explain to anybody what racism or homophobia or sexism is, right? So I, I see um, our services responding to this in various ways. And I think that our training of health professionals is trying to be responsive to this. Mm-hmm. At the same time, because of the research I do, I know that people still go into a lot of spaces and have very negative experiences that can be, um, that range from just feeling not included to being actively discriminated against and, and having some quite shocking experiences sometimes when they seek help that ends up turning people away from seeking help. So I think that if I, I think there's always more work to be done in terms of making the system more responsive and, and I think more deliberately taking on an agenda that says we are an anti-racist service setting and this is how this is demonstrated. But also um, I think there's work to be done on training people to understand that whatever the problem is or whatever the issue is that brings people of color into their practice or into their service setting, that they are highly likely to be carrying this additional, this additional complicating issue of historical trauma, intergenerational trauma, vicarious trauma, because of what we're seeing in the world right now. And so some of the ways that people, some of the ways that they may present some of the ways that they might respond to the type of help that we're offering has to do with that, that background and that underlying tension that people carry and what might be an underlying trauma, complex trauma that is a result of, of being a racialized person in a racist environment. Well, let me ask you this. Given the complexity of that, given the seriousness and the entrenched nature Do you think it's possible for white professionals, for non-racialized, non-Indigenous people to be effective as as healthcare providers for racialized and Indigenous people? I do believe that's possible. I think that it starts with a a humility around recognizing that uh, we all have to learn how to do this work, because Mm -hmm. I I don't don't think, it doesn't make sense to me that we, uh, we start to think that that the only people who can provide effective services to racialized people are other racialized people, or that the only people that can provide services to indigenous people are other indigenous people. I do think there are, there are important reasons why that needs to be something that's available. That needs to be something, especially I think when I think about indigenous communities and, and the history of having, having other people have so much control over their welfare, there's actually very important reasons why 
that why I would always support prioritizing Indigenous workers and Indigenous communities. But at the same time, um, we all have a responsibility to be able to provide service to the entire community. And we all have a responsibility to equip ourselves to do that effectively and competently and safely. And I think a first step is recognizing that that it is not correct to assume that, that, that you can work effectively with all people, that this is actually an area of competence that needs to be developed and that there are limitations. There are limitations in what I as um, a heterosexual black woman can provide to somebody who has a very different identity. It doesn't mean that I'm not still able to be helpful and supportive and useful and a, a good ally to that person, but there are some limitations. There are certain things I'm not able to do, but I can equip myself to do the best work that I can do as an ally working with, uh, with people who are different than me. And what do you think is the best way to equip yourself? Well, I think that it starts with seeking out like I, well, first of all, I'll start with humility again, <laughs> recognizing the need to seek that out. But I think it's it's seeking out those learning opportunities, and uh, some of that may be the sort of conventional paths of seeking out professional development and and prioritizing in that in your training as a as a health professional or social services professional. But I also think it's about seeking the opportunities to learn from these communities about what they need, mm-hmm. and so. Where might there be opportunities to collaborate, to consult, to seek the expertise, to seek training from people um, in these various communities, and with that to become a better equipped professional yourself? And then also, I think, recognizing, like I said, that there might be limitations. There are limitations in what you might be able to provide to other communities, and um, that sometimes the best thing you can do is actually... Uh, create the pathways for communities to be able to to deal with their own to do to do the work in their own communities. So, as, speaking as somebody who's a, at a university, part of what I see as the important work that we do in a faculty of social work is creating pathways so that yes, creating pathways so that a diverse group of students will later become a diverse group of professionals that's available to provide services in our communities maybe to their own communities, maybe to other communities, but everything that we're doing to create those pathways and facilitate that um, capacity building within communities, I see as important work for social workers. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of us who think psychodynamically are also uh, aware of the importance of thinking about our own biases, our own assumptions, our own uh, uh, racist tendencies that we really need to be very cognizant of. I, you know, was very aware during COVID in ways that kind of alarmed me. I thought I was a little more involved than I was, but I was aware of a sort of visceral response that my body thought certain people were safe and certain people weren't safe. Mm. And that I would sort of react in this way, in a way that really quite appalled me. (laughs) And it was completely irrational and had to do with, you know, my childhood, my upbringing, ways in which one absorbs biases and assumptions that from one's parents long before they're even discussed, long before they're even talked about. And I think that people find it kind of disconcerting and even offensive to think about 
themselves as being bigoted, racist, biased person. But the fact of the matter is, we all have assumptions, biases, prejudices, uh, mm-hmm. and racist inclinations that really need to be explored and addressed. And I, I wonder if you're finding a willingness among uh, privileged populations to, you know, to really a- address their own kinds of inclinations before they start working with people who are extremely vulnerable. Yeah. Well, I, what I would say is, I think what you say is so true. It's partly, it's partly our desire to see ourselves as good people. And we believe that only bad people hold these ideas. So right. it's, so right. it's hard to, to, to have that, hold those together. I, I why you know, can I think of myself as a good person and also a person who um, has racist, sexist, homophobic, anti-Indigenous, you know, all of these things that holds these ideas. And I I do think it's so important to be checking ourselves on it because the thing is, if it doesn't get challenged, you know, we don't necessarily, like, I don't believe people are keeping the secret to themselves. I think, I think that they haven't necessarily been challenged around it. And part of what happened in the pandemic and with all of the things that were going on around it was we were challenged. We were challenged on our beliefs that the world is a fair place. We were challenged on our beliefs that, uh, you know, Canada is this beautiful multicultural place, <laughs> you know, all these things, <laughs> right? So, so then it gets challenged and we recognize something coming up in us that we don't like, that we don't think is part of us being a good person and we push it away. I think we always have to be willing to do that work, but I think we also have to support each other in that work. So I think one part of that is, I mean, as I spent years doing anti-racism training, I didn't, you know, I think that I have an analysis and some experience on thinking through these issues, but I don't kid myself that I'm not carrying around racist ideas. Right. I, I grew up in the same environment as everybody else. It's like oxygen around us. Yes. It, it has to, we have to be exposed to it in some way, and it's very easy to move through life not being exposed to it. So I I try to challenge myself all the time, but I, I rely on my my good friends and colleagues to challenge me gently and lovingly as well. Right. So, well, so. I think, yeah, I think that's hugely important. One of the things or the experiences that uh, had a great effect on me was when I saw uh, a black journalist on CNN who was crying because he said he was a black man and he was he was afraid of black men, mm-hmm. that he'd been so uh, bombarded with negative images about young black men that he had internalized that kind of racism and how you know profoundly it upset him and 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 hurt him uh and i wonder if you would talk a little bit about what he meant and what i mean by internalized racism well i i think it's what you're saying that we grow up in the same environment seeing the same images seeing it uh in a multicultural environment. So I, I'm realizing as I, I hesitated for a moment, because I was just thinking for a moment about when I t- used to teach in the Caribbean and how it felt very different to be in that environment because there's certainly different races in the Caribbean, but the being in an environment where everybody was Black and Caribbean, Black Caribbean, um, was there was a palpable difference um, that people growing up in an environment where there aren't these there isn't this racial stratification in the same way they occupy that differently so i so part of what was going through my head is do i think somebody growing up in that type of environment has the same type of internalized racism and i 
I think to an extent it's impossible to escape because we've become so globalized that no matter where you are, you're still seeing bombard, being bombarded by images that communicate things about who has authority, who deserves respect, who's dangerous, you know, all these things, mm-hmm. right? So I think you do still internalize it. And I believe that like this journalist you're talking about, we're troubled by it, right? And so maybe we push that away as well. Mm-hmm. We're, we're troubled by it because if you're carrying these kinds of feelings, um, what do you do to, to not deal with them? Um, how do I, how do I protect myself from those feelings? How do I, what, what happens in those moments when it, it, I apply it to myself and I become, you know, whatever the world's doing to stigmatize me and marginalize me, uh, the person inside my head is much more effective and has more time with me. Right. So how do I, how is that affecting the way that I move through the world? What fears does it cultivate? What, um, how does it make me uh, afraid to do things and, and to claim space that belongs to me, that internalized racism? So, I mean, really, I think, you know, I, I, again, because I'm a mother, I think about this in terms of how do we teach our children to be aware of this being part of the world, not the entire story of it, but part of the world that they're growing up in and how do we have conversations with them that will help challenge challenge the messages that would make them accept and believe the negative messaging that the world directs at them and i think it's it's really about surfacing these issues i think the mistake that sometimes people make is that they don't talk about these issues because they're painful and they're difficult and they want their children to believe that the world is just full of possibility and nothing's ever going to get in their way. And it's, it's hard to, to start talking about the fact that there are things that will get in your way, that there are um, disadvantages that exist just because of your physical presence, not because of anything you've done, not because of anything you said, but just because of your physical presence. I mean, we don't want to think about it ourselves, much less cloud the worlds of our children with it. But I think the other part of that is also the story of resilience and the fact that we are still here, that we are here as a collective, that there are that there are strengths and resources and beautiful things about being the people that we are that hopefully crowd out that internalized racism um, dampen its sound and equip us for when we find ourselves in situations where that's challenged. So if I were going to sum that up, would I say that we both need to talk about it in order to have it to enable to provide some resilient uh, opportunities for children, but we also need to provide very positive experiences and positive models for children to inoculate them or to 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 give a counter narrative to the kind of racist narrative that's out there. Mm-hmm. Exactly, I think, and I think to you know a variety of of narratives because they're they're growing up in a world that is not only racist but it's sexist, sure, and it's homophobic and all of these yeah. things. And, well, I, and I, I, I will always say that's not the entire story of this world, but it is part of the world. So how can we, you know? I, th- I think in some ways the time has never been better in terms of being able to cultivate and curate experiences and um, exposures for our children that would show them 
these resiliences and these strengths and the, the beauty of the diversity of our communities and the beauty of who they are as people. Because I, I'm certainly aware of growing up at a time when there was very little around. And it's not that those resilient people weren't there or those models weren't there, but they certainly were not being presented to a child of my age at that time. I think it's pretty important that our schools begin to teach children about slavery mm-hmm. and about uh, our uh, relationship with our own Indigenous populations before we can really move forward, don't you think? I completely agree. I, I, I get a bit astonished when I think about how history was presented to me at the time. And then I used to think, well, surely it's not like that anymore, but it clearly is. <laughs> it clearly <Right>. is. <laughs> the other yeah. the other place where I, I was exposed to this was, was the citizenship test. When my husband took the citizenship test, I just couldn't, I mean, just, so even as you're being brought into this country as an immigrant and, be, and becoming part of this beautiful dream we call Canada, you are sold this incredible version (laughs) of the formation of this nation um and i i i I think it's it's important that 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 we we tell this deeper broader history and and help our children to understand that this is part of how the nation has been built but just because this is our history it does not mean it it has to be our future we have to have like a, a fuller understanding of that past to build the future that I, I believe is the dream this country could be and should be. So, so for children to know about our, our history with Indigenous people so that they have a context for what's happening now and our history of slavery, our history of, oh my gosh, there's so many of them, <laughs> just mm-hmm. so many things to point to that have all been part of building this nation and then, and then covered. And just, you know, hidden from view so that we can maintain a story of ourselves as a good country. Right. It's possible to hold these things together and to raise a generation that is, that knows the truth and is focused on reconciliation. I mean, I I like this idea of reconciliation um, that has been brought into our awareness uh, through, um, through the work of Indigenous communities. But it's, we need to have this in a lot of different areas. There's a lot yes. of truth to be told and a lot of reconciliation work to be done. And it, and, it, and it simply can't be done by ignoring it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is you had asked earlier about people's willingness to do this work. And I, I think there's always going to be some people who are enthusiastic, um, excited champions of this work. And there will always be some people who are enthusiastic underminers of this work <laughs> do not want to exam- examine yes. it at all but yes. I think most people are somewhere in the middle just wondering what it means to have their core beliefs challenged or their beliefs about themselves or the world being challenged and and wondering what this means for them and I see that as the people that we want to work with the people that we want to engage around what does this mean and and what does this what does this what responsibilities or actions does this confer on me? And how can I be part of a positive change? Because I, I do believe most people want to be part of positive change. And they're just not sure how or not sure what it will mean for them. Well, I think, you know, to that end that we still, despite our however sophisticated, intelligent, evolved we are, we still have a tendency to be very concrete in our thinking. They're the good guys and the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And if I'm a good guy, then I can't be a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of general mental health, that having a broader 
uh, identity um, is pretty important and that, you know, a, a positive self-esteem can include the kinds of things that you're talking about, being a part of something very horrific, being a part of something that is cruel and unfair. And to to understand that it, it, the possibility that one can do bad things doesn't preclude the possibility of doing good things or repairing or reconciling, as you say. Yes. That, uh, but but just simply saying, I didn't, I wouldn't, I couldn't, doesn't really uh, forward the conversation or, or leave a possibility for change. Yes, people get stuck. And I, <laughs> I do think, uh, you know, there's a type of resilience that we all need to build up, which is our ability to tolerate uncertainty yes. and discomfort, because it's not... <laughs> it can yeah. get uncomfortable for sure. Sure. But it doesn't have to stay in that place or we can learn to work with that place. I mean, if I think about the work that I do now, uh, which brings me into contact with Indigenous students and Indigenous community leaders, uh, I'm aware of my my placement, my positioning as a settler. And I remember the first time somebody said that to me, I was like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm an immigrant to this country. <laughs> that had nothing to do with me. I, yeah. I did like the race to innocence in my head right away. <laughs> sure. Of course. I probably did not say it out loud. <laughs> 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 but, but I mean, it took some time for me to sort of work through, no, this is, the, this is, this is your positioning. <laughs> this yes. is it. So in your work here, you know, and in your engagement with these communities, you need to remain aware of that positioning. Yes. And that you can't just sort of relax and say, oh, this has nothing to do with me. I'm not, I'm not a descendant of an English or French settler. Right. <laughs> so, right. yeah, that, I, I think, I mean, I recognize this work as being stressful for everybody involved. So change is hard. Challenging ourselves is hard. Um, stepping back and recognizing that we have benefited from this is hard, right? We, sure. We benefit from it. And it's we again we want to think of ourselves as good people we want to think of ourselves as having earned everything we've done and it's hard to sort of think hmm, you know actually <laughs> actually i it doesn't mean that I, you haven't worked hard for every bit of it but that there are ways in which this you were systemically um, advantaged and others were systemically disadvantaged and that this actually means that those other people have had something taken away from them and that you have received it so on that note, I think we, we can kind of conclude by understanding a little bit of what you're talking about in terms of the need to be open, the need to be willing to have conversations, the, the, the need to, I think, take collective responsibility. Is that, you know, for the kinds of actions of, of our ancestors and of our people that we, we have a responsibility to acknowledge what happened truthfully and that we have a responsibility to do something to address it. Well, I, I would I would bring it into the present as well. I mean, we have to be aware of what our, our ancestors have done. We have to be aware of what we what I did yesterday. Yes, <laughs> you know yes. I mean? So be open. absolutely. So we, we have to be aware of that. And I think bringing it back to to mental health too. I think that if I if I think about health professionals, teachers, other people that are in roles where they're working with people sometimes around issues that can be quite difficult personal issues, family issues, these kinds of things, that I think that there's a, there's also just a, a fundamental piece around awareness that people who, who we encounter who are racialized are 
likely to be carrying this extra burden of stress, this extra burden of trauma, this extra burden of um, just every day. Yes. Pain. I'm, I, I think uh, when we talked about this earlier, I talked about grief too. Yes. A type of grief that we carry for, you know, the world that we thought we were in and that we have lost uh, the, the, maybe the actual tangible losses in terms of people and experiences and opportunities, all these things. So people are carrying these things with them and that may manifest in your encounters with them in ways that you don't necessarily recognize. And so our ability to, to be aware of the, the possibility, the, the likelihood that people are carrying this pain and this stress with them. And also our ability to create the space in which it is okay for them to share that pain and stress with us. Because certainly when in a lot of the research I've done where people are talking about their encounters with health professionals, so much of the time what they're saying is that they tried to bring these issues forward and they were told either that that this was just depression or something like that, or that what they were talking about didn't really exist or that they were making a big deal out of nothing. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's the, there's there's sort of a set of circumstances in which this is some, an undercurrent that you may not be aware of. But there's another set of circumstances in which people are really, really looking to us and hoping that we can meet them and, and talk with them about these issues. And we're failing them over and over again. So it's not that people have to be an expert on it, but to be even able to say, I hear what you're saying and I'm, I'm, I'm here to hear what you have to say about this, I think would be just tremendously useful and helpful for so many people. Well, I think that's a wonderful message to to end on. And I'm aware that we're about to have a huge thunderstorm. It's (laughs) raining very hard and we're going to have terrible background noise. Charmaine, thank you so much for participating in this and for sharing your uh, great expertise and your your knowledge of this really important topic. I'm I'm very grateful and, and I know our listeners will be too. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Janet. I hope that you you have things in there that you will find useful, and I hope it's it's useful and helpful to others. Very much so. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Charmaine Williams. It's pretty clear that we have a long way to go to address issues of racism and discrimination and their negative effects on people's mental health. That's it for this episode. Next time, I'll be talking with Professor Faye Mishna, also from the Factor Inwintosh Faculty of Social Work about childhood bullying. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Janet Morrison.